Hello, and welcome to the CFA UK podcast series on climate change. My name is John Tihan, and I'm a portfolio manager with RWC Partners. In these podcasts, we hope to shed light on issues facing portfolio managers, analysts, and others within the financial industry as we grapple with climate change, the impact on the industry, and our role in supporting the transition to a low-carbon world. In this episode, I'm going to focus on renewable energy, particularly in Europe. And why should we generalists pay attention to the renewable sector? Well, renewables are expected to play a leading role in displacing fossil fuels, providing two-thirds of energy by 2050, according to the IEA net zero emissions by 2050 scenario. To put it into context, renewables, excluding hydro, account for 5% of primary energy today, including hydro, that becomes 11%. The energy transition will be a massive challenge, impacting all sectors of the economy. But for those of us invested in the energy sector or hard to abate sectors, it will have a major bearing on the investment returns from our companies. For example, we will see vast sums diverted from shareholder distributions to fund the development of renewables by the large oil majors. Can these investments generate a positive return? while we read about the depressed IRRs from recent renewable auctions. There is also a massive opportunity for investors. The IEA estimated that on average, there was two trillion spent annually over the last five years in investing in energy, rising to almost five trillion by 2030. This illustrates the scale of the opportunity in the transition and the opportunity for renewable energy. In this episode, I'm joined by Sean McGuire, Sean has worked in renewable energy for 15 years, most of that time on the development side, working with electricity, element power, and Statcraft. Statcraft being one of the largest producers of renewable energy in Europe. Sean joined Impact's asset management earlier this year, moving to the buy side, investing in renewable projects as a managing director within the private equity infrastructure team. This experience gives Sean a really unique insight into the development of the renewable industry over the last decade, a crucial decade for renewables. And it helps and gives him a key understanding to the drivers that have made it go mainstream, as well as the challenges it faces in the shape of technical, regulatory, and the pressure on investment returns. So welcome, Sean. And may I start by asking you to share a sense for how the industry has changed since you began your career. John, it's good to be here. Thanks for taking the time to speak. Um, it's 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 a good question. I think the straight answer to it is it has changed a lot. You know, when I I joined and started renewables back in two thousand and seven, it was very much a niche industry. You know, it was a new industry. It was relatively small, not a huge amount of players in it. You know, fast forward to today, and it's much more mainstream. You know, wind and solar are the you know principal asset classes, treated like any other asset classes in infrastructure. You know, the whole climate change has been front and central of people's mind. And that's had a huge impact on renewables. And, you know, if you look at some of the key drivers around that, you know, we look at the public perception. To me, that's one of the most important things that have changed in the last 10 years. You know, you'd love to think it was because people become a lot more conscious and wanted to do the right thing. But in reality, a lot of the natural disasters we're seeing has really brought this front and central into people's minds. And people now understand the need for renewables and the, the risks around climate change. You know, you see the wildfires in Australia, you see the wildfires in America, the recent floods we had in Europe. That has brought it front and central of people's minds. And that really has been the catalyst which has driven governments into action. You know, everyone listening to this will be aware of the really aggressive targets, targets that governments are setting. And that's had a huge impact on the industry. That has driven the demand side on the industry. That's one of the biggest changes I've seen since I came into renewables. Is you know, the supplier renewables projects is always something that us developers are working on. 
But the other side of the equation, the demand side, has changed rapidly. You know, the government targets have been set for renewables. On top of that, we've got the electric electrification of heat transport coming through, which adds more demand. We see the big corporates looking to go 100% green, and then we've got the whole green hydrogen movement, movement coming. So I've seen myself just a huge demand for the projects, which has been a, a big, big change that I've seen. So much there, Sean. And I guess if we just try and get some sense of, of the change, say at a technology level, what have you seen? Yeah, look, like I think if we look at some of the technologies, John, like let's take onshore wind, for an example. You know, back back when I started, onshore wind was an asset class that investors looked at with a certain degree of risk. You know, they would have been looking at double-digit returns for operating projects. That has changed dramatically in today's world. We've gone from a world now with onshore wind where construction is pretty well known and understood. You know, people know how to build wind farms, non-recourse project finance banks. And for your listeners, most funding, most debt funding and renewables is done on a non-recourse basis. So really the the lender is only taking security over the project itself and no recourse to the sponsor. So very, very low risk. You know, those banks are sort of putting a three to five percent contingency on the construction costs of a project, which to me looks like it's very, very low risk. Your operating costs are very well known. You know, the yield output estimates have got much better, better understood. You know, but in the early days, there's a lot of question marks around those. They've improved a lot. So you now have an asset class that investors look at, they understand it's a well-trodden, well-proven valuation methodology. It's just become a much more comfortable asset class for investors to invest in. And that's and that's reflected in the lower, you know, yield expectations, lower IRR expectations investors have in those assets. You know, you've seen you've seen onshore wind and solar has followed a pretty similar path where it's gone from almost a niche new technology. Now, as I said earlier, it's almost just like any other technology that you see out there. So I guess there's been, you know, there's so many different parts to the renewable sector. You've got hydro, which is traditionally there, and then you've got wind and solar being, I guess, the, the next two big, big parts of it. Maybe if we just take them one at a time. Let's start with hydro, because I guess that is the one where there's probably least potential to develop in, in the future. Yeah, you're right. You're right, John. So in reality, a lot of the large solar projects that are going to be built have been built. You know, it's such an attractive asset class. And it works so well with wind and solar as well because it brings base load to the equation. You know, one of the challenges of wind and solar is the intermittent generation. You can't predict precisely when generation is going to come. With hydro, you don't have that problem. You know, you can you can control it, you can use it. It uses a fantastic balance to wind and solar. But on the flip side, the challenge with hydro is from an ESG perspective, it can be quite challenging. You know, often you have to displace people, they're very large construction projects. So from an ESG perspective, it can be, you know, it can be more difficult. But from an actual asset class, an investor asset class is extremely attractive. It's got very long life. You know, it's got um, you know, pretty, pretty predictable returns. And it's something every time you see a large hydro project come into the market, you see a lot of capital going after it. So can you give us some examples of, of more recent hydro projects? And, and I guess what you said there is key about other ESG issues, displacement of people, biodiversity loss, etc. Have you got some examples that we could, could kind of... Give us some more colour on that area. Yeah, so the, the, the classic one which people always jump to is the huge project that was built in China probably 15 years ago, China Tree Gorgeous. They built a massive project and that was really one of the key drivers of the Chinese, Chinese economy as it was opening up. But, you know, when you read the stories about that, you see potentially a million people were displaced from their homes to get that project built. You know, something of that scale, you know, that's, it's very difficult to implement and trying to do something like that from a European perspective in the current environment would be really, really difficult to do. So you, you see those challenges and that kind of gives you a feel for how difficult it is to get those new big hydro projects built. You know, what you're seeing in the Nordics, for example, now is a lot of smaller run of the river hydro projects being built you know, on a much smaller scale, 
much more, much less impact. I mean, on, on the local community and the local society. And that, you'll probably see more of that coming. You know, everybody is looking for that next big hydro project. Again, because it's such an attractive asset class, but you know, a lot of the really good resource has already been exhausted globally. Okay, so then moving on to, to wind and solar, and let's take them one at a time. With wind, you referred to earlier about the developments that we've seen over the last decade. I guess there's technology developments and there's also the move from onshore to offshore wind. So can you give us a sense for how it's developed and why why these projects have moved from, from onshore to offshore? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a couple of things. So and wind is the classic example about how does it all evolve and why the prices have come down. If you look at recently, the International Renewable Energy Agency released some statistics that showed the cost of a solar panel uh, has reduced 90% in the 10 years up to 2020. And for wind, which we're talking about now, it's like 55, 60%. So that's a huge, huge price reduction that has happened on the wind side. So when you look at that price reduction, you also couple in the better estimates on the output. You also factor in that the construction risk is much better understood. You also factor in that if I build a wind farm, I can now sign a long-term O&M contract with the OEM provider, you know, the turbine manufacturer of Vestas or Siemens or GE for 20 years. So I can make my cash flow for an onshore wind farm look pretty predictable from those elements. And I think the key driver for the discount rates now for onshore wind is how are you going to sell your electricity? You know, we've gone from a world where when this was a, a, an infant asset class, let's call it that 15 years ago, the government would provide tariffs with a fixed price. So if I built, if I was developing an onshore wind farm and I got land planning and grid, I was guaranteed a price I could sell my electricity at the government for maybe 15, 20 years. And that was hugely attractive and it gave a lot of certainty to developers. Today and now, the government's, once the industry is up and running and getting to scale, the government's changed and they said, okay, now I'm going to run competitive auctions. I want, to, I want people to really drive down the price of producing that green electricity. So I'm going to run competitive auctions. And that meant as a developer, you had to go and try and squeeze more value out of your project. You put pressure on the supply chain. You look to optimize your output. You really, really drove down those costs. And that's had an impact now where in some countries, subsidies are no longer even required. You can build some projects of merchants. So that's kind of been the, the story of onshore wind and how it's evolved and one of the key drivers to put the price down. And at the same time, you know, onshore wind is a finite resource. There's only so much onshore wind you can build. And to get to the sort of levels and the scale that we want to get to, to get to the net zero by 2050, Obviously, you need offshore. So offshore has come a little bit further behind onshore wind. It's probably still still around double the cost on a per megawatt basis to build an offshore wind project against an onshore wind project. But the beauty of what offshore gives you, and the reason why you see all the big oil companies and really big players going in there, is scale. And again, the offshore industry, if we take the UK, for example, when offshore, when the first government doctrines were ran and the contract for differences were handed out to the government, they were around £150 per megawatt hour. The most recent UK offshore auctions were coming down to £40 per megawatt hour. There's actually a 62% decrease in the auction result for offshore wind in the UK from two years ago to the current auction. So when and, you this, see and this, I guess, plays into what we as, as investors in the energy sector see that there's a lot of commentary about the returns that now are implied from these auctions are extremely low. And, and while the energy majors say they can make it between 10 and 12% return on these assets, the headline is that the, the, the IRRs are closer to 4%. So how do you explain the difference there? What is, what, how can the energy, I guess, sector claim they can make such more attractive IRRs? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good point. And again, like yourself, I've been monitoring some of those announcements that some of the oil majors have been making coming into the sector. And when I heard those numbers initially, I was thinking, well, they look, that sounds pretty aggressive. You know, if you're, if you're buying an offshore, an operating offshore wind project in Europe, you're not getting double-digit returns. It's just that that's not where the market's at anymore. 
So you would have to imagine, again, we can't speak on how they believe it, but my own view is that they're probably looking at taking some development risk. So getting into the projects at an early stage, so you can take development risk and create higher returns. They'll build the projects out and perhaps then they'll look to farm down shares in those projects. So you know, if, if the oil majors are talking about making double-digit returns in offshore wind, you would have to imagine they're factoring in a sell-down of at least a portion of those projects once they're operational. You know, John, in, in the renewables world today, you know, increasingly a lot of the operating projects are ending up in the hands of pension funds or low cost of capital who are looking for low risk, uh, you know, constant yield um, projects to invest in. So you, you increasingly see that your utilities, your developers, the big players, even the oil majors are building these projects. But once they're operational, they're selling down stakes and then they're recycling that capital they make from the, from the sell down back into the development business, which is making higher returns. But, that, you know, you, you see that happening quite a bit. Okay, so you're saying that there's obviously different parts of the market, different investors looking at it and different objectives. So what's really driving down the IRR is the most cautious end of the market. Yeah, yeah, you see a lot of you see a lot of capital, and again, it, it, all of our listeners will notice huge amounts of capital flooding into the market now. A lot of that capital is going after what I see as the safest investment in renewables, and that's buying into assets that are already operating, especially if those assets had a long-term price hedge from the government. Your counterparty for selling your power is the government. So they are the way you can structure those assets now, you can structure them very risk-free. You can enter long-term contracts for your operations and maintenance, you can enter long-term contracts to sell your power, long-term land lease contracts. So you can make it look and feel almost like a bond, never quite a bond, but that's what you're always trying to achieve. You're trying to make these operating assets. And once you get that level of risk, that's when you bring in the very, very low cost of capital. And that's where a lot of capital today is flooding into the renewable sector. But, so you're saying that the capital come in, comes in after the development risk has disappeared. So at the point where these um, projects are, are about to be constructed or are constructed, that is the point where the big capital is flowing in. Exactly. That's where the large quantities of capital are coming in. So there's just sort of three sectors in the renewables world. You've got your operating assets that we've just talked about, low risk, you know, low cost of capital. You've got your pre late stage development, pre-construction. So the equity is coming in to assist with construction. And you know, now in today's world, a lot of people aren't pricing in construction risks. They're saying, you know, construction of onshore wind or offshore wind and solar is pretty low risk. But I always say it's low risk until something goes wrong. You know, so I think there is, you do need a level of sophistication to understand how to navigate that late stage development and construction. That's the middle part. And then the early stage is development where, you know, that, that's the high risk and where people want high returns. So you might start developing 10 or 15 projects and you're hoping that three, four, five of them will actually get into construction. So if you're a pension fund and you're looking at where will I put my money into those sort of three buckets, the obvious place to go is the operating assets, low return, you can deploy lots and lots of capital. You know, increasingly, you're seeing more people coming into the construction, taking construction risk as it becomes more understood. And then, yeah, the development side of things. And I was a developer for a long number of years. You know, sometimes it is difficult to find that development capital that will back you because it is higher risk. What is the real... What, what are the reasons driving that risk for development? Is there, is there particular regulatory issues or planning issues? Yeah, there, there is. And again, it comes back, if you, you take it, go right back up and you look at the macro picture, and we talked about demand and supply earlier, you know, the world needs more projects coming through. You need more onshore wind projects. You need more solar projects. You need more offshore projects. And the industry is trying to create those. But, but there are certain bottlenecks as to when it comes through. And today, it's much more difficult to get planning permission for a project than it was 10 or 15 years ago. You know, planning application used to be 10, 15 pages long. Now it's 400 pages long. And that's right. That's the way it should be. Just environmental standards are very high. But if you're a local council and you're not used to getting these planning applications, 
suddenly you might have got three or four applications a year. Now you're getting 20 or 30. It just takes time to process them. So the planning system needs to catch up with the scale of deployment of these projects that is required to get to net zero. So the planning is one bottleneck. But the grid system is, you know, I, sometimes I feel sorry for the grid operators. They're caught in the perfect storm. You know, you've got a, you've got a situation where you're taking off your, your base load inertia uh, from the grid that the grid operators like, keeps the grid nice and steady. You're replacing it with intermittent generation, which makes things more difficult. And you've got these big targets that have been set. So you need huge investment in the grid to get to those levels as well. So there's lots of, I guess, lots of regulatory changes that governments need to make back up the commitments they're making to get to the net zero. I want to come back to the, the grid and the transmission issue, but before we leave uh, returns, there was quite a critical article um, in the FT earlier in the year, and it talked about how when there are auctions held in the UK, the price of electricity is so low that for that to really, um, for, for, for companies or investors really to make money, one or two things have to happen. Either the price of electricity um, has to go higher and therefore hits the end consumer, or actually the investors will not get the IRRs that they expect. Can you yeah. talk us through that and what, what is happening there? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of dynamics happening there, John. So, so one is you know, what is happening in these auctions now? And what, is it a support scheme that the government are offering or, or what is it? I think that's important to understand. In the UK, the government offer what's called a 15-year contract for difference. So if you're a wind or a solar project, you bid into an auction, you say, I need this price for 15 years in order to build my project. The government will then look at that price. And if you get accepted, let's take an example. Say we bid in 35 pounds per megawatt hour. That means that for every unit of electricity I produce, I'm going to get paid 30, 35 pounds per megawatt hour, regardless of what the market price is. But how the contract for difference mechanism actually works is that if the market price is above 35 pounds, then the project gives the excess cash back to the government. Or if the market price is below 35 pounds, then the the project gets a top up from the government. So it's a, it's a fixed price. But the really interesting dynamic, and there's a paper from the Imperial College London in 2020, is that by the government's own estimate of future electricity prices and by where the industry and the expectation of where strike prices will go, particularly for onshore wind and solar in the UK, but soon enough for offshore wind as well, is that those CFD prices are going to be below the government's own estimate of where electricity prices will be. So in reality, the government are handing out these contracts for difference, but the expectation is the government will actually make money off them. They won't be giving money to the, to the projects as a subsidy. They'll be taking money back off the projects because the market price is higher. And, and I think that's a dynamic that is lost in people because when people think about auctions, think about support schemes, but the UK market is evolving to a, to a, to a state that that's, that's not where we are now. So that's the first part of your, your question, John. And I guess basically why those prices are so low is that when we go back to that point about cautious investors, they're trying to create that bond-like stream of cash flows. And therefore, they're happy to take that lower price. It implies a lower return, but it's a guaranteed return for the 15 years. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, it all comes back to risk. So if, you're, if you own a project and you're sitting there and you look at the market and you go, well, I can and try and sign a PPA with a corporate if I can find one. I can go merchant, which means I'll just let my, I'll build a project and I'll spill my power into the market and I'll take whatever price is there. Or I can get this contract from the government that's, of course, is going to, it's likely to be lower than the market price and my return might be lower, but my return is much more certain. And as you and I know, John, when you can give certainty in your return, you can bring in cheap debt, you can bring in cheap equity. So the, the auctions in the UK have been very effective in driving down the cost of electricity. It has forced the developers to operate in a much more efficient manner. 
it has put huge pressure on the supply chain to bring down your costs so that those projects can deliver at those levels. So yes, you're right. The return expectations for the projects that are bidding into the auction may be a bit lower, but but at the same time, the person bidding in controls what they bid, and they're only going to bid in at a price that they're comfortable with. You know, effectively, we're on a CFA podcast, everyone will be very familiar with the, with the investment principle here, but you are, your capex, your opex, your output are all pretty well known. So what you're doing is you're adjusting your CFD price to back solve to your target IRR. So that's, that, that's what people are doing. So yes, people might be bidding in aggressively, but they're, bidding, they're only bidding in a return that they're actually comfortable, comfortable taking. So that then leads to the other side. You were talking about the merchant risk. And I guess that under that supports in a way of what the oil majors are saying to us is that they will take the merchant risk. And this is where you sell into the market at the at the market price at any given time. Yeah, and it's a brave, brave new world for renewables. Like, you know, this whole merchant grid parity 10 years ago when I started there, 15 years ago was unheard of. It was sort of a pipe dream and aspiration. But let me explain to you what it is actually, John. So at the moment, it costs around a million euros a megawatt to build onshore wind in the UK, roughly, or a million pounds a megawatt. And um, so your modern turbine that you would see built onshore is probably four or five megawatts. So in total, it's costing, say, five million pounds to build each of those new turbines you see coming up onshore. So if we get planning permission for 10 of those turbines, you're making a 50 million pounds investment. So your options are to reduce your risk. We can bid into the auction, as we said. You'll probably get a low price if you've got a high degree of certainty. You can go and try and get a corporate PPA maybe for seven to 10 years, so a shorter tenor, but still giving you a good degree of certainty if you've got a credit-worthy counterparty, some of the big American tech companies, for example, or you can go merchant. So when you go merchant, basically what you're saying is, I'm taking a look at the Ford price, price curves that various people are projecting and going, I believe that the electricity price will be sufficient to give me a return that justifies the risk I'm taking going merchant. And you're seeing that happening a lot. And you know, in terms of the IRR spread between the government auction, which is your best case scenario, and the merchant, which is the most risky, you're probably talking about a two to three percent IRR difference between those two areas. So then you've got that merchant um, upside potential, but you've also mentioned earlier about you know, the yield compression and the ability to farm down some of these projects. Yeah, and I think that's becoming increasingly increasingly used by many many different players, including offshore and onshore. You know. Really, what you what the industry needs is lots of development capital creating these new projects. If we go back to the demand supply equation, one of my concerns is that the demand for renewable for green energy is exploding and continuing to grow. Can the supply of projects keep pace with it? And you know, for example, in Germany today, you've got auctions for onshore wind which are undersubscribed because projects can't get through the planning system quickly enough. So there's there's, there's lots of different areas that need to be factored in when you consider around consider around that point. And it's interesting, I guess, because to the facts that we mentioned earlier about how much energy we need from renewables, the two thirds of total energy by 2050. So as I said, there's a huge demand for it, but there's also potential bottlenecks that you also referred to earlier. Can you talk us through the transmission issues? And this is something that Bill Gates raised in, in, in his recent book as well, that the, the challenges in transmission is really something that renewables will find hard to solve. Yeah, absolutely, John. It's one it's one of the key risks. You know, it's very easy for governments and politicians to come out and say we're going to build have a target of this many gigawatts in 10 years' time, or you know, all, all these big targets that have been set. It, it's pointless generating a lot of renewable power if it's not being used efficiently or if it can't be transported to where the greatest need is. So one of the things that needs to happen in the renewable industry is massive investment into grid infrastructure. So your national grids in the UK, your air grids in Ireland, these DNOs. 
they need to be they need to be prioritized and that investment has to be made because if you don't make that investment john you end up with huge amount of constraints you know you're generating power but it's not going anywhere it's not helping the wider the wider renewable story for example so you know you see examples of negative pricing occurring now sometimes when there's too much generation the grid can't move it away so the whole the whole grid side of things is a story itself that needs to be resolved and that's that's from an investment perspective in the infrastructure but it's also you know in terms of just the stability of the grid you know i referenced earlier if you're taking off your your ccgts and your large you know, base load fossil fuel projects that are given the inertia and at the same time you're bringing on lots of intermittent wind and solar when you can never be sure when that's actually going to generate you're bringing instability to the grid and then that takes you on to the next subject you need investment in the grid but you also need some storage projects that would assist the grid to help it stabilize I think the storage story is going to be huge in the next sort of five to 10 years. We've seen some of that instability in the grid and also instability in pricing in Germany. And you mentioned negative prices. And I think it was the German the German authorities were paying people to stop producing electricity, to turn off the, the, the wind turbines, if you like, because of the inability of the grid and the transmission network to move the electricity around. Yeah, no, and you see that, John, and that's the classic. It's one of the one of the one of the challenges that the renewable industry needs to address is you know, how do you bring stability to this, all of this intermittent generation that we're bringing? So if you're going to build out lots of wind and solar, you know, hand in hand with that, we have to build out more storage. You have to, we've talked about the transmission point, you need to get the transmission network up to speed and to a level that facilitates the free movement. And that's transmission within country, but it's also interconnection between different countries. You know, that is a critical factor going forward and something that the EU are really focusing in on. But then at the same time, when you look at the storage where, you know, there's this misconception out there when you hear storage your natural inclination is okay you're storing power and then you're going to use it at a later date but it's in reality now because of the challenges a lot of the grid operators are facing because of the quick rollout of renewables they what they really need is help with stability so most of the storage projects and the headlines you see in the papers today have new batteries been built on like the uk is the market leader in europe now for batteries lots of new batteries have been built but the vast majority of those batteries are actually being used for services, for grid services, frequency response services. In the future, they'll be used for storage and trading and all of the things that you know, the normal person would think that's what batteries are being used for. But right now, those batteries are being used to plug a gap on the, on the, on the grid infrastructure. So what you're saying is the storage is just stabilizing over a 24-hour period, if you like. But when we think of, of what we're really trying to get to in the future, it is taking into account that the wind isn't so strong in the summer and the sun doesn't shine so much in the winter. That is the future, but right now storage is all about grid stability and, and short-term, um, 24-hour yeah. level. Exactly, John, exactly. That, that, that's, that's what's happening right now. And look, you know, we see countries talking about get to 50, maybe 70% renewables penetration. You know, that's going to be really difficult to achieve. It's going to need huge investments in storage, not only in the current storage technologies, it's going to need huge advancements in the storage technologies we're looking at. You know, you see people are taking investments into green hydrogen and into underground storage. All of these areas are being worked on to help deploy more wind and solar. So from a grid operator's perspective, you do need those solutions to come along or else it's unrealistic. This concept of getting to 100% renewables, you know, that can't happen in the near term. You need massive advancements on the storage side of things to enable that to happen. Just thinking then, moving on to, to, to solar, and maybe before we even go there, thinking across Europe, where is wind dominant? Um, I guess it's obvious it'll be on the West Coast and then where solar is dominant. But are we seeing solar in Northern Europe as well? And are we seeing wind across the continent? Yeah, so you're seeing like wind has pretty much been deployed in most places, you know, 
the Nordics have got almost the cheapest the cheapest cost of electricity produced by wind, just because they've got very high tip highs, got good wind speeds. So the Nordic markets from a wind perspective are probably the leaders for onshore. UK offshore is probably the leaders, but th- those markets are now getting down to what we call grid parity, which is no longer needing subsidies to actually produce. So wind has been deployed pretty much across Europe, but most economic in the northern side of things. Solar, as you would imagine, pretty obvious. Your Spain's, your Italy's, your Greece, these countries, they've got the highest output. And they're the markets now where we're seeing solar getting grid parity. Spain, an example, is a huge market as they for renewables. And I've seen a huge number of gigawatts deployed in Spain last year, a very, very buoyant market. But what you're seeing now increasingly is you're seeing solar being built across the rest of Europe as well. Maybe not quite the Nordics as those getting started, but you know, the solar industry in the UK is very, very large. It has been for a long number of years. Even our, our, my home country, Ireland, where growing up, I never thought I'd see solar being built. But we're seeing, we're seeing lots of solar being deployed in Ireland now. And, and solar is sort of a huge growth area for renewables too. You know, you can deploy solar on ground-mounted solar, which is what we're talking about here, the big projects. You know, most new houses, it's a requirement to have solar on the roof. We're seeing a huge drive from industry where they're putting solar onto their industrial warehouse rooftops. You can expect to see huge deployment of solar. And it's the, it's the technology that's seeing the most rapid reduction in costs as well. So then solar, I guess, is more distributed in, in, in those terms. And that also takes, I guess, some pressure off the grid and the transmission network. Absolutely. Absolutely. For, for renewables deployment at scale to work, and we use the word to work, or to get us up to very high degrees of penetration, it needs to be deployed as close to the locations where the power is needed as possible. It's pointless building lots of intermittent generation areas where then you have to, you have to transport it elsewhere. So they're the sort of market signals you need government and regulators to give and that they encourage in some way, shape or form, they encourage the production or the generation of new power close to the big demand centres. And that's something you'll see increasingly happening with regulation as we move forward. And Bill Gates made the point also about solar being much more efficient versus wind. How, how do you, I guess, think about that? How do you look at wind versus solar investment opportunity, investment returns? Yeah, so I think, I think the one big difference between wind and solar, so I think firstly to say both of them are, both of, them are now a very mainstream investable asset, as I said earlier. People, there's a well-proven methodology to value them. People understand the assets, to understand the risks. So that, that, that's led to very low cost of capital for both of those. Um, I think the big difference between wind and solar is that solar output is more predictable than wind. You know, it's, it's easier to predict when the sun's going to shine than it is when wind, when wind is going to blow. So that means there probably is a lower return, a slightly lower return expectation for solar than, than wind projects in Western Europe. Or, you know, giving a rule of thumb, you're probably talking around 1% in some countries in terms of investors looking at a solar project and a wind project. And that's probably factoring in slightly lower construction risk for solar. You know, it's easier to build a solar park than it is a wind farm. And just the output for solar is, is better. So, you know, it's easier to predict. And then also the life of a solar project. You know, you can expect to have a longer life for a solar project. You may have to replace the solar panels than you can for a wind turbine. Overall, with the capital flows, so are you seeing more going to solar in, in Europe or? Well, I, I think the boat, John, and I could just to give you an example so that the listeners understand the context now is that, you know, when, we, when, we, when I was selling a wind farm, say 10, 12 years ago, I'd be very happy to get four or five non-binding offers or bids to buy that project from credible parties. That would be enough and I'd be pretty happy with that. If you take a wind or solar project, which has been well-developed, well-constructed, operating, and you've got the risk profile of it right, if you take it to the market now, you've got a huge volume of bidders coming in. You could be talking 40 or 50 investors for those projects. So you've got to the point now where in terms of capital 
to deploy to build and deploy these projects. There's lots of capital out there for you know ready to build or operating projects. I think the bigger challenge for renewables now is just keeping that supply of projects coming through to feed that appetite that the capital has to invest into projects. So if you then look out over the next 10 years, what are you seeing? Are you expecting something similar to what we saw in the last decade, which was a phenomenal drop in the cost of, of solar and wind? Or how do you think it's going to move? I think it's going to, my own view is that it's unlikely to fall as much in the next 10 years as it did in the last 10 years. You know, it, it gets to a point where you know, it's not just about the turbines and the solar panels. You still have to build the road infrastructure. You still have to dig the foundations. You know, you still have to do all of those ancillary works around it. So I think, of course, costs will, costs will continue to fall, but maybe not as quickly as they have in the past. I think what we can expect to see is more and more countries getting the grid parity. You will see government support schemes getting phased out across most of Europe. In the next 10 years, you'll see more projects being built on a merchant basis, like we discussed, or increasingly being sold to corporate PPAs or utility PPAs. So I think you can expect to see government support phasing out in many countries over the next 10 years, not all, but many countries. I think that will be one of the big changes we see. I think also we're going to see huge deployment of storage assets for all the reasons we've spoken about already. There's going to have to be lots more interconnectors built. There's going to have to be lots more different types of storage to help those grid operators who are under huge pressure manage all of this intermittent generation coming on. There's no getting away. We're expecting 30, 40 gigawatts of new storage projects to be built in the UK in the next 10 or 15 years. There's probably a couple of gigawatts of storage in place now. So that's going to be a, a key team for the European renewable sector. Um, I think the UK and you know, Boris has been very bullish about this. They will really want to ramp up their offshore wind sector. You know, costs have come from £150 down to £40. Now is just a big opportunity to deploy gigawatts of offshore wind in the UK. Very interesting, John. You look at the Scottish government ran a leasing round last week for the next generation of offshore wind projects. Effectively, it was like a who's who of the renewable industry bidding in. The big utilities are in there. The big financial players are in there. The big oil guys are in there, all forming different consortiums. And the results of that is going to be very, very interesting. But it just goes to show the attractiveness and the focus for offshore wind for very big players. And I think that's going to happen. You're going to see offshore wind get rolled out increasingly across Europe. The US are really looking into offshore wind now as well. So I think you'll see a lot of a lot of growth in the offshore wind sector. And what about floating offshore? I've heard this mentioned by some of the oil majors. Yeah, I think it's, again a lot of the a lot of the bids that are going for offshore now in the UK or France are looking at floating offshore as well. That's coming. It was always coming. A lot of the near shore near shore, what we call it near shore, where you build your offshore project close to the shore so the water's not too deep. A lot of those good areas have been taken up. And just technology investments their technology advancements for floating offshore have come very, very rapidly. So it's going to be huge deployment. But again, John, I go back to my point. There's only, it's, only, it's only good to build huge amounts of offshore wind or floating offshore wind if you've got the grid infrastructure to transmit, transport that green electricity where you need it to go. And, and are the governments, are you seeing signs that governments are seriously investing in grid and transmission infrastructure? I, I think they are, John, but just not quickly enough. I think they're caught... They're caught themselves a little bit by the pace the industry has come on and how quickly this mass deployment is happening. And you know, it's all well and good us saying, oh, they need to invest more and more grid infrastructure. But every time you invest in a grid infrastructure project, that's an infrastructure project in itself. So if you're building a new line, you have to get planning permission for it. You have to sign up the landowners. That could be a four, five, six-year project. So you know, if, when, once, if, when the government makes an announcement saying, we want to build more offshore wind, at the same time, they have to have a plan alongside it that says to enable that, we're investing into our planning infrastructure to enable projects to get through. We're investing into our grid infrastructure to ensure that the curtailment isn't too high in those projects. We're investing into our people that work in those 
public servants that work in those departments to enable all of this to happen. So it all has to go hand in hand with each other. And what about interconnection across the European Union? You know, we, yeah. We've seen issues in the US with with uh, connection lines running across the US with the lack of, of that transmission network. Do you see that happening in, in Europe where we've, we're either sun rich in the south and, and wind rich in the north or west? Do you see that happening? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the European Union is really, really backing interconnector projects and they want to get them built out. And it's happening now. The UK are building projects to Norway, they're building projects to mainland Europe. There's another project being built to Ireland. So but interconnection is key to all of this. You know, if you look along, as we mentioned earlier, the west coast of Europe, so off the coast of Scotland, off the coast of Ireland, going down to Portugal, France, that's where a lot of the offshore wind is going to be built. But those countries need help in getting the infrastructure in place to export the excess renewable energy that they're inevitably going to produce. And that'll be one of the key teams you see happening over the next 10 and 15 years. Moving to hydrogen briefly, we're seeing lots of companies announce hydrogen projects, hydrogen partnerships. Are you seeing anything from, from in the renewable space that you're looking at? Yeah, so yeah, there's, there's lots of noise about hydrogen. There's a huge amount of media attention and lots of people speaking about it. And look, my own view is I think hydrogen will have a role to play going forward. There'll be certain industries that you know, green hydrogen will play a big, big role. But, but there's also lots of challenges with green hydrogen. There's lots of advancements that need to be need to be made. You know, the cost of electrolyzers needs to come down quite a lot. But transport is a really, really big challenge for green hydrogen. And I think this is what you're seeing, the partnerships that are happening with green hydrogen are where they, the electrolyzers are being built close to where there's lots of offshore wind generation also more importantly where the demand for the power for the green energy is. So you're trying to avoid those pretty high transport costs that are still there. So I think I think there is a role in it. It's very difficult now for investors to see exactly you know, when to invest, when to exit, or what the returns are going to be. There's lots, there's lots of risk remaining around it. I think that there will inevitably, of course, be a role for green hydrogen going forward. I think there's a, there's a bit to go yet in terms of it becoming established and known as to how exactly people would use those the technology that's there. Well, thank you, Sean. That was an incredibly interesting conversation. We've covered an awful lot of ground, I think, across the different renewable uh, sources. Very exciting industry. The last 10 years in, in, you know, has been phenomenal. And as you've been pointing out, there's so much more to develop because of the, the demand there. Um, and now it's about supply and meeting that demand and the investment into the infrastructure. So thank you very much for your time. Very enjoyable and all the best. Thanks for having me on, John.